All right, great. So yeah, we are back into the Gospel of Mark. And this has been a series that we've been in for, um, yeah, I mean, close to a year. And we will be finishing and wrapping up uh, with Easter of this year. And uh, yeah, looking forward to that. And um, I know I, I've heard a lot of feedback from uh, us as a community, just how much uh, the Gospel of Mark has been kind of being worked into our our nervous system spiritually and kind of into our, our muscle memory. Um, and it's really important because, again, I, I do think that there's so many things that can distract us right now and really are fighting for our attention, um, that we should be giving our attention and energy to things. And I think it's really important to get into the gospel to see what Jesus and his disciples were giving their energy and attention to and how we can be faithful in times like this, especially with times of disruption and our normal rhythm, like Debbie said, just kind of getting thrown off and our weeks and days not looking quite like we would want them to or think that they should look. Um, so I want to start with a question before we jump back into Mark 10 is where we're going to be. Um, in your mind, when you hear the greatest of all time, who do you think about? Okay, so the the, the young folk uh, abbreviate this to the GOAT. Like who is the GOAT? The G-O-A-T. Who is the greatest of all time? Now for you, it could be somebody, I mean, it, it could be a musician, it could be a band, it could be a, um, an athlete, it could be a, um, a leader, a, a teacher, an author, whoever it is. For you, right away, when you hear the greatest of all time, where does your mind go? And then secondly, how do you define greatness according to who you consider to be the greatest of all time? Is it an achievement? Is it a skill that they have? Is it maybe a status that they were able to reach or a standard of life that they were able to achieve? Or maybe it was their recognition or their influence that makes them great. And what is it about that greatness that they were able to achieve that you admire, that you look at that and you say, man, if, if only I could have some of what that person had, that, that would be great. <laughs> that would just be ec excellent. Well, we're going to see Jesus speak about this very topic in Mark 10 with two of his disciples in particular, James and John. So we're going to read Mark 10, starting in verse 32. And they were on the road, all of them walking together, going towards Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And the disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again from the crowd, he began to tell them the things that would happen. So this is the third time in three chapters that Jesus is going to tell them, here, we're going to Jerusalem and here's what's about to happen. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man, speaking of himself, will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death. And then they will hand him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him, spit on him, beat him and kill him. But he will rise after three days. Okay, so third warning, Jesus tells his disciples this and you're like, wow, what a conversation. Here comes James and John, ready? So James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached Jesus and said, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. So Jesus responds, what do you want me to do for you? They answered him, allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Speaking of his coming death and crucifixion. Their answer, very confident. We are able, they told him. So Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink 
and you will be baptized with the baptism I am being baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Verse 41. When the ten disciples heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord the power over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all last. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, this is a, a amazing text because there's a lot going on here. I want to hone in on a couple things for us this morning. If you notice James and John, before we get too hard on them, James and John desire greatness. They desire excellence. And if we're honest, we all do. This is not something that's strange to us when you hear it. No one aspires to mediocrity. No one aspires to not matter. Everyone, regardless of where you land on, religious, not religious, socioeconomic, rich, poor, anywhere in between, we all want to find purpose and matter. We want to succeed at whatever it is that has been given to us that is in front of us. We want to be valued. We want to be recognized. That is not a bad desire. That is a natural desire. That is a good desire. And I would argue that is a God-given desire, that there's something in you and I that would actually come out from within us that would make us aspire to excel, to do something, to be fruitful, to have something that we can look at and say, I've done this and it is good. And I would say that that was something that God put in us. And notice what Jesus does here. It's so tender in the way that he responds to them because this is a bit ridiculous, this conversation. But if you notice, Jesus doesn't correct their desire for greatness but he does correct their definition of greatness. And just like them, in our cultural moment, they had specific mental maps of what greatness was. Influence, popularity, wealth, beauty, attention, uh, a standard of living, self-advancement, whatever the definition is of greatness. Today, our culture is not different than theirs in exactly that where there's a clear division between nobody and somebody's, uh, famous or not. And, and usually it's based on where you were born and, and where you live or what city you're in, what community you're in, what your house looks like or where you got your degree from or that salary. That's when you know you've made it or that house, that car. How many followers think you're awesome or, or that climbing that ladder of influence and success so for them, they have a mental map. They have an idea of greatness. And Jesus takes all of their kind of self-focused and self-propping definitions of greatness and he flips them entirely on their head. He comes at them and says, no, 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 you're missing it. True greatness isn't taking over. It's giving over. True greatness is not found in muchness and bigness, but in small, repeated acts of service and self-giving love. And remember all throughout Mark, Jesus has been like teasing this out. The first will be last and the last will be first. And to enter into the kingdom, you must become like children. 
That was the slogan of what power and greatness look like in the kingdom of God. And here come James and John with their own definition of greatness and their own pursuit of power. Now, if you remember anything about James and John, they're, they're the sons of Zebedee, but they also have another name. Their nickname is the Sons of Thunder. So I don't think you get the nickname Sons of Thunder for being like the quiet guys in the corner of the room. I think they're probably pretty confident. Um, I don't know what made them the Sons of Thunder, but that's a pretty amazing nickname, right? What is clear is that they're go-getters. I mean, they're ready to go. They're driven. They know what they want. They, they, they know how to get it and they go after it. They're not afraid to honestly and in a raw kind of way come to Jesus and say, hey, here's what we want, Jesus. We want to be your number two. We want the corner office in the kingdom of God. Is that okay? Can we do that? And what I love about Jesus's response is he doesn't go, huh? Try that again, peasants, right? Like he answers truthfully, but gently. And he actually says to them, to encourage humility, he says, you don't actually know what you're asking. See, the Gentiles seek to grab power and rule over other people. And they think that that is greatness, but not with you. Jesus just finished saying, I'm going to be killed, handed over to the powers that be, but I will rise. And that's how my greatness and power will be made known. And so their response is not, Wow, let us think about this because I don't understand that. Their response is, so do we get a promotion too or, right? So, so they miss it entirely. They miss entirely what Jesus is doing here. And all throughout chapter eight and nine, especially, Jesus is painting a picture for them of what the Messiah is, him, what he is going to do. Because for them, they don't have a category of a dead Messiah. They don't have a category for a defeated Messiah. Because why? Well, just common sense for you and I, death is not really a sign of power. Death is a sign of defeat. Death means you lost. So Jesus in saying this is he's actually making a radical and slightly ridiculous point. He's saying to them to know him as Messiah is to experience him as a suffering servant to experience him as a crucified king. And for them, they're going, no, no, but kings don't die, they reign. Like, like, like the Messiah comes to rule, not be handed over and be defeated. That, that's, that's, to, that's losing. The Messiah comes to win, not lose. And so before we're too hard on them, you have to understand that they didn't see what... They didn't see then what we now see in full on this side of the cross. They didn't see that the cross wasn't the end of Jesus's mission at all. It was actually only the beginning. The cross was not a disruption of what Jesus came to do. It was the very reason he came at all. And rather than see it as defeat and death be the end of his life, his death would actually become the way that he would give life. And so that's so upside down. That's so paradoxical for them because they have no category for that kind of Messiah. Now, so remember the context historically that we've seen in Mark. Israel doesn't have a king, right? Israel doesn't have a kingdom. 
They haven't had a kingdom or a land that belonged to them for 600 years. So the Jewish people, their mental map of what it means to be king, they're still taking those cues from the culture around them. They are a cultural and religious minority in Rome. So Roman rule looks like what it means to win. That's greatness. That's power. And the whole Old Testament promises that there will be a one who is going to come. There will be the king who will come, the anointed one, the Messiah, who will come to restore the reign and rule of God. So they're sitting there going, well, that must mean getting rid of Rome. That must mean taking the secular halls of power and booting people out of it so that we're at the top. And so they had lots of ideas floating around of what that should look like and some expectations of what the kingdom of God is going to come like. We don't have time to get into some of the nuances here, but the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and then the Zealots, like these were all very influential groups at the time. And they, they all had very different ideas about what it means to win in culture. And there was also real political movements at the time. There's one that you, you can Google it. Um, it's called the Maccabean Revolt. And it started in about 160 BC, and it was led by a guy named Judah Maccabeus. And it was like a guerrilla military movement that tried to squash Greek control of Jewish life and customs. And it succeeded to a certain degree. And it started their own like dynasty called the Hasmonean dynasty. But it only lasted to 37 AD. And it was squashed by the Romans. So on the like scope of history, that's a blip. And, and the, the disciples, I think, they would have known what the Hasmoneans were about. They would have known that maybe that's how we do this. Like maybe we just kind of get some guns and, and, and get some swords and, and we get in there and we take, take Rome and we get the center of power again and we get to the top and that's how we're going to see God be God. That's the mental map for his disciples. The kingdom of God meant military victory. It meant political privilege. It meant booting the Romans from power. It meant being the moral and cultural majority to try to launch a national regime of the king's rule through the Messiah. So before we get too hard on them, what is your mental map of the kingdom of God? What is your mental map of the expectations of how the kingdom of God not only uh, starts, but how does it spread? Because often we can borrow you know, political ideas or social ideas or cultural ideas and import them into our minds. And then that actually trains us to read scripture a certain way. And we end up losing some of the paradoxical beauty of how Jesus spoke about power and not just spoke about it, but actually demonstrated it himself. So the tension that we see in this passage is that James and John more than just having a bad mental map, I think, of what it means for the Messiah to rule, I think they also see discipleship as a means to get what they actually want. They see following Jesus as a means to getting what they truly want. And that's success, power, wealth, influence, control, whatever it is. They want to they be in charge. I mean, they, they just want to call the shots. 
So rather than see discipleship to Jesus as the end, like not the means to the end, but the following of Jesus to be the point of their life, they see following Jesus as the way that they can achieve something that truly is their true desire. And so rather than us look at that and be like, huh, how did you guys miss that, silly? What we're invited to do in this text, we are invited to self-examination too. How often does God say to you and I, after we pray what we pray and live how we live and, and you know, or fail to pray and fail to practice good spiritual habits and fail to be giving and fail to be generous, how often does God say to us, you don't even know what you're asking? What could you and I be missing about discipleship? How many times do you and I use discipleship to Jesus really as the way for us to just try to get what we really want? Rather than seeing allegiance and worship and following of Jesus as the actual end itself. I think we have to be careful with our talk about discipleship today. And nowadays, it floats around everywhere in our culture. Because just as a warning, any vision of discipleship of the Christian life that emphasizes the benefits of the Christian life at the expense of the cost of the Christian life is not in step with Jesus' definition of the Christian life. Okay? You and I have to hear that. Any vision, any teaching, any influencer, any pastor that you you like their podcast or them on YouTube or whatever it is, any vision of discipleship that emphasizes to you and I the benefits of the Christian life, which there are, there are lots of benefits, but at the expense of the cost of the Christian life is not in step with Jesus's definition of the good news of the gospel. Over and over again, Jesus makes the point Resurrected life is only for the crucified. True life to the fullest, life eternal is only for those who would deny their self and enter into a death of self, a crucifixion of the self with the promise that God will resurrect that man and woman to a new life. And over and over again, Jesus fuels this upside down kingdom with upside-down power. This paradoxical kingdom rule with paradoxical power. And notice, church, it's not superior power of the same kind as the world. Did you catch that? It's not just more power of the same kind. It's a different kind of power altogether. And so I want to read verse 41 through 45 again so that we, we kind of park here for the rest of our time. Because it's really important to understand what Jesus then uses this as a teaching moment. Not just to James and John, but to the rest of his disciples. So enter you and I as the rest of his disciples. Here's what he says. When the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Now that's interesting. I don't think they're mad with James and John because they, they were offside in what they asked Jesus. I think they were mad with James and John because they didn't get to ask Jesus that same question, Right? And so here they are jealous that James and John got to them first. Jesus called them over and said, listen, come here, come here. You know, you know very well what it looks like for the rulers of the Gentiles to lord power over you and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. 
On the contrary, here's the different power. Whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all last. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He redefines power. He's saying worldly power coerces. Worldly power bullies. It ridicules. It creates categories of privilege so that there's superiority and inferiority. But power in the kingdom of God comes through self-giving love. True power comes to those who are not after power. It comes to those who are relinquishing coercive power. Those who choose to not be combative and coercive in their power are the ones who are empowered. So Jesus is making the point that worldly rulers, because they're of the world, they are about a power grab to hold it over others. And Jesus flips it and says, the most powerful position is one of self-giving service in the likeness of a servant or a slave. The power of the gospel isn't experienced by self-serving and a self-propping life, but by humble, self-giving servants of others. And it's intentional that Jesus uses um, servant and slave. And he uses both of them, and they're slightly different in that culture. But what he does is he takes those two positions, because in Roman society, those are the two lowest positions of power. And that's also why he uses children often. Because children were considered throwaways. There wasn't a very high value on children either. And so he takes the two lowest positions in Roman society to show his disciples what true power looks like. And I love that because he could have picked anything, right? Like he could have been like, true power in the kingdom of God is like the emperor. And then he could have like redeemed what it means to rule as an emperor. Or like go back to Old Testament theocracy of like true power um, means when we actually have God seated as king and here's how we follow his law and here's what we do. But he doesn't. He doesn't do that. He takes the two lowest positions in that society and says, it's like that. Now why? What is he doing there? Well, I think it would have been as shocking to them as it is to us today to hear that. And so try not to move on too quickly from this. Because you and I were like, yeah, yeah, I get it. Like the gospel and Christian life is to be servants. Okay. But you and I don't live like that. Okay. You and I don't live like we have no rights, no property, no agency of our own. We don't live like we exist for others. We don't live like that. Because our culture tells us the exact opposite of that. And so when you take servants and slaves in the ancient context, they both lived in positions of submission to others. That's what they have in common. And we don't have time to get into some of the historical nuances of the difference between those. But you have to hear that, that with the servant and slave in the ancient context, they couldn't live self-serving lives because they existed to serve others. That's what's key. Now, when you hear the word slave, slavery was very different in the ancient context than our mental map for slavery, okay? So just really quickly as a sidebar, today when you hear the word slavery, uh, we get squeamish and rightfully so. Why, why should we? Well, because our reference point for slave, a slave is chattel slavery. It's, it's man-stealing. It's the transatlantic slave trade. Or in our world today, it's human trafficking and sex slavery. 
right? And so that's our mental map. Now, that is something that has always happened since humanity has been around and sin has entered the picture. We've used and exploited each other rather than serve and steward each other. That's happened. But when the New Testament speaks about servants and slaves, we need to be careful to read the Bible in its own terms and on its own terms rather than jump to our own historical reference point of what it looks like um, with, with slavery in our own history of the last especially 400 years, okay? So slave is used about 150 times in the New Testament. That's a lot. Most translations in English, though, won't use slave. They'll translate it servant or bond servant. Now, I don't think that's helpful in most, most cases because servants and slaves were very different. Uh, here's a couple verses that might be some of your favorites that use the word slave that maybe you didn't know. Matthew 6, 24. No one, speaking of money and, and God, no one can be a slave to two masters. Matthew 25, 21, when we're talking about finally meeting Jesus face to, fa face, to face. Well done, my good and faithful slave, not servant, slave. Paul opens up the book of Romans. Paul, a slave of Christ. He opens up the book of Philippians. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ. 2 Peter 1. Peter opens it up. Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1. We were bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, not with silver or gold. That is a slave market imagery of a ransom. And many New Testament theologians would say that the idea of being a slave for Christ is actually the image expressed most vividly in the New Testament for what it means to be a disciple. Now, why is this important? This is important because it pushes against our tendency to reduce the Christian life to believing some things about Jesus or asking Jesus into your heart or being saved or helping you, God helping you to become your best self or to maximize your potential. To understand how the New Testament speaks of discipleship, is radically different than so much of what our even church culture does in how we speak about discipleship. Asking Jesus into your heart is not the same as saying, I am a slave for Christ. That's very different. And all throughout the, Old, the New Testament, to be saved by Jesus is to be owned by Jesus. It's to be his possession. It's to belong exclusively to him. He is Lord and King and Master, and we are slaves of Christ. Now, church, is that your posture before God? Is that your understanding of following Jesus? Because the amount of humility and the, the posture that we have nothing to bring and we have no rights of our own, that we are only who God says we are, radically changes how we live out our Christian life. And I will just say that when we talk about stuff like this, when we talk about, you know, servant and slaves of Christ and submission, it's like, ooh. In our culture today, there's still a few things, even in our secular kind of post-Christian culture, there's still a few things that our culture applauds about Christianity. Uh, we still get applauded for generosity and mercy, 
um, caring for orphans and widows and trying to alleviate poverty or try to fight against human trafficking. Like, like the, our culture still goes, yes, that's good. Keep doing that. But <laughs> a call to submission and us freely choosing to live as servants of Christ is not one of them. Okay. Now, the reason why that's so backwards to our culture is that the centerpiece of the Western culture is what? The self. Self-esteem, self-image, self-help, self-love, self-empowerment. Those are the centerpiece of our cultural moment. Getting yours and doing you and living your life. And make it make sure it's your best life, though. Live your best life. That is the centerpiece of our Western culture. It's the only sermon we're preached, and it is everywhere. Now, what's the impact of that? Well, you and I reading the cultural teleprompter all day, every week, all the time, it trains us, it forms us to live as individuals and to prioritize personal desires and interests over everything else. You decide where you live and what job you get and what you don't do and what you do do. Somebody outside of you speaks into that and gives you some wisdom or chat. I was like, no, no, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do me. Uh, you get to spend your money the way you want to spend your money or save your money or blow your money. You get to do with your time what, what, what you want to do because ultimately you got to do you and you need some me time. It's everywhere. So today, submission, the idea of submission, isn't just a cultural taboo or like a curse word. Like that's a bad word. That's a badass word, right? But it's actually considered oppressive and destructive to our individualism. Submission is seen as destructive to our authenticity, our authentic selves, and the pursuit of our personal happiness. But let me be very clear about how the Bible speaks about submission. When the Bible speaks about submission, it is never to subjugate, belittle, demean, or oppress. It's actually the way that we experience freedom. Submission is actually, when it's properly placed and understood, the way that we experience life to the full. And because our default mode is to be self-serving, and maybe you don't believe that yet, that, like, that you are more selfish than you think. Like maybe you don't believe that. It's, it's always still everybody else's problem, which again comes back to a weird self-serving way for you to look at problems. But because our default mode is self at the center, our pursuit of freedom has also changed too. Okay, so if you, you, you got to recognize that. What that means is, We've come to freedom itself has changed because self is at the center. Freedom has come to mean a removal of any limitation on self-expression, any limitation or control measure at all on how we want to express our authentic self, especially external voices. So some of you may have seen that. You try to go and give advice or speak wisdom in somebody's life or try to bring a concern to them. And it's like, oh, no, man, I, I got this. I don't, I don't need you to speak into this. I'm going to take care of my business. And it's like, okay, that's that's good. Yeah, you want to take care of your business. But what, what 
what, what like mission of self-expression and self-actualization can happen in a vacuum without external voices of influence? Well, none. None can. Jesus actually says that with his definition of submission is that the pursuit of freedom without submission is actually an illusion. It's impossible. The Bible comes at us and says the only freedom that you and I actually have as human beings is the freedom to choose what will master us. The only freedom you and I actually have is to choose freely what we will give our life to and what will master us. Freedom from one thing always leads to restraint in another. So saying yes to something in my life means I do have to say no to something else, which is a restriction. That is a restriction on freedom. Freedom, in order to be free, always involves restriction. A couple examples. When it comes to education and career. Any of us who have pursued that route at all in any way, whether it's just from high school up to doctoral level, you make short-term sacrifices, restrictions, for long-term gains. You say no to partying and staying up late and hanging out and spending money so that you can pursue that education, that degree, that expertise in that field. Another example, uh, you eat healthy so that you can see your grandkids. You're free to eat however you want. You're free to eat a Big Mac three times a day. You're free to do that, but you will submit at some point to your body's limitation to handle three Big Macs a day. So do you see how in our culture, we only talk about freedom and how that helps self-expression, but we never actually talk about what's happening on the other side of that freedom and what restrictions and what things are we actually submitting to and giving our life to on the other side. So the question isn't, how can you and I live free of all restraints? How can we live a life and not submit to anything or anyone? The real question is, which master will value you and affirm you and truly give you life? John Mark Comer reflects on this kind of cultural moment and says, the widespread wisdom of the day is to follow our desires, not to crucify them. But in reality, be true to yourself is some of the worst advice anybody could ever give you. And here's why. He says, giving into the desires of our flesh does not lead us to freedom in life, as many people assume, but instead it leads us to slavery. And in the worst case scenario, addiction, which is a kind of prolonged suicide by pleasure. I think he's so right on this because we need to be intellectually honest about how we speak about things like this because our culture speaks about it very differently than we do. Very differently. And notice the key word that Jesus uses here when he says about his mission to offer freedom. He says, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. A ransom. Now, usually when you hear the word ransom, for you and I anyway, it's like you think about like kidnapping or a kidnapping movie. You're just like, oh, the ransom. And they're on the phone is like $13 trillion. Click. You know, be there at 2 p.m. or else. Click, right? And, and that, that is true in a sense. Ransom payments are used to free people from a kidnapping or whatever it is. But in the ancient culture, that word ransom is actually a little bit more uh, nuanced and significant than that. Usually ransoms were only paid 
for prisoners of war. So it was a very high price to be paid to prisoners of war. So what you would do is if Rome showed up, conquered you, you didn't have a choice of like, hey, could I maybe just be a baker? Could I just maybe be the local tailor? It's like, no, 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 you're a slave now. Because like we just took over. And so so you're going to be a slave now. And that, that that's all you're going to be. You don't have any rights. You don't have any property, nothing. So think about it as like bail. Okay. You end up trapped somewhere and somebody else has to pay bail to get you out of that. Something has to be done on your behalf by the ransomer. And the, Jesus is saying, I'm the ransomer and not just in gold or silver, but in my life, I'm going to pay in blood paid in full. That's the ransom I'm about to pay for all people who have come to understand this upside down power of the kingdom of God. But the catch, the catch on a ransom payment is that the one who is ransomed actually becomes the property of the ransomer. And that's really interesting. That the one who is ransomed, actually, they've literally just bought them. And they are now at the mercy of the one who has set them free. And that could go really bad. And that could go good depending on the character of the person who has ransomed you out of being a prisoner of war. Jesus is saying to his disciples through this that that is your state, that you are enslaved. There is no way to get out of your current situation unless I buy you back with my life. You are completely incapable of freeing yourself from your condition of deceitful desires and self-serving everything and brokenness and sin. You can't save yourself. You can't self-help yourself out of that. You cannot. I have to do it for you. I have to rescue you. I have to free you. I have to ransom you. Jesus' definition here and invitation to discipleship is radically different than what we hear, not just in our culture, but in our own churches. Culture says, you can do anything. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Culture says, live your truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. Culture says, live your life. You only live once. Jesus says, lose your life and you'll find it and live forever. Culture says, be yourself. Follow your heart. Jesus says, die to self and follow me because your heart is deceitful. Culture says, you are enough. Jesus says, my grace is enough. Culture says, I am strong, I am rich, I am healthy, I am forgiven, I am beautiful. Jesus says, I came for the weak, the poor, the sick, the broken, and the guilty. Not everybody who already thinks they're healthy. Church, when we pay attention to the differences between Jesus' call to discipleship here. It must humble us in the presence of the God who already had all power and still does, who puts that power down and comes and ransoms us with something so costly that we can never repay that. And this kind of teaching, I think, confronts the story that most of us believe. If we're honest with ourselves, and we think deeply about this. We honestly, I know we hear this as Christians, and we're like, if we're a follower of Jesus, we're like, yeah, okay, you know, I, I get it. But I still kind of need to look out for myself, right? 
Because it's like a dog-eat-dog -dog world, man, you know? I got to climb. I got to achieve. I got to make it. got to get going. I got to do more. I got to do better. But the reality, according to Jesus, is that the only way to be great, the only way to be like our rabbi, our teacher, our Lord, the greatest of all time, is to take the position of servant. That our greatness rides on him. That our greatness, our accomplishments, our achievements are not things done apart from our following of him. But that it's actually anything we do as we follow him becomes great because it's wrapped up in him. That we've been ransomed and rescued. Not by a ransomer who's going to take us and make us a slave and begrudgingly beat us down and tell us that we're nothing, but by a ransomer who will bring us home as a gracious and loving king who also happens to be our father. And it, it, it's in that that we see the beauty of adoption. That the opposite of slavery in the ancient world isn't just freedom. The opposite of slavery in the ancient world is adoption. You don't just get to come home to a place that you can call home. You actually get to come into a new family. You're no longer a slave. You have a new name. You have a new status. And it's completely wrapped up in the new family you belong to. So if we're honest as we process the gospel like this, you and I do not live day to day thinking, how can I serve? You don't. Now, there might be like holy moments of like, mm, yeah, just feel like serving right now, Lord. Mm. Okay, but, but, but our default is the opposite of that. We don't live life saying, how can I serve? How can I take position of servant in this situation? Or how can I actually try to love and serve this person? How can I help? It's quite the opposite, really. Instead of how can I serve my family, my friends, or my church, or my career, whatever, all of those things become ways to serve me. What can I get from my family and my friends and my church and my leaders and my government and, and my spouse and my job? Like, oh, my job and education, that better give me something. And it's like, oh, but, but what, if you, what if you entered into your calling and your vocation and your career as a servant? I saw um, an op-ed in The Guardian a few years ago, and I was just reminded of it this week. And I just love when the culture gets it right. And just aligns with already like Christian truth. And it was this op-ed on selfishness. Um, and it doesn't have a good ending at all. Like it's like really a downer. Like it's pretty, pretty bad how it ends. Cause it's just basically like, because we're all selfish, just avoid people. That's the, that's the answer. And it's like, oh no, no, but, but I have a better, like we have a better answer, right? But here's what it says. I'll just read an excerpt of the, the op-ed for you. In these trying times, when everything seems awful, Amen? So it's like, yes. It's worth remembering that people are fundamentally good. Except actually they aren't. According to a swath of recent studies, the world is full of terribly self-centered people. And I'm afraid that you're probably among them. Indeed, you probably think this article is about you, don't you? Well, perhaps you don't. Not all men are created equal equally awful, and some people are just more self-absorbed than others. So as you can tell by the, to the tone of that quote, there really isn't a redeemable aspect to any of that. It's just an observation of culture, and it gets into men and women and who's more selfish and how it comes out and all sorts of stuff that I'll save you from because we don't really need to get into that. 
But here, here, here's what's interesting. If our culture can recognize that so much of the awfulness that we go through day to day and week to week is from self-serving, selfish people looking out for themselves first, Jesus shows up and goes, not so with you. That the distinguishing mark of the Christian life is not self-serving, but self-giving. That the distinguishing mark of the Christian life is humility. It's freely and willingly taking the posture of servant in a culture that's dominated by serving self and striving to get to the top at the expense of anything and anyone. You see, humility, we talk about it in in interesting ways, but you got to understand biblically, humility is actually not like a, a character trait. It's a posture. It's a decision to live with a posture settled under God. That's what humility means. So I'm going to choose a posture of living life settled, just settled under God. Because, because everything that I have been given, it's his anyway. And so, so I'm just going to, I'm going to trust him with everything that he's been. I'm just going to be settled. No, no striving, no forcing, no coercion, no asserting, no controlling. Because if I can actually live life settled under God, what it shows me is that I have a true view of myself before God. And I think this is why Jesus calls his followers to be characterized by meekness, a posture of a humble learner. Do you have the posture of a humble learner in all of life? Is that your posture? Do you go through life and even conflict and awfulness, things that just are, they they suck. Do you walk into those sucky situations and say, how can I be a humble learner in this situation? What can I learn about this season right now? How can I be a humble learner and live settled under God because there's so many things outside of my control? Well, to the humble learners that follow him, Jesus promises something in Matthew 5. He says, it's those who will inherit the earth. You see, church, when we're saved by grace, we can no longer walk with a swag. We have nothing that earned that. We were ransomed out of being a prisoner of war. And so we can't be caught up with ourself. We can't be caught up with self-concern and self-perceptions because our identity in the gospel is not worked for. Our identity in the gospel is not manicured or created Our identity in the gospel is worked from because we were ransomed from slavery. Our priority is not self anymore with that kind of economy of the kingdom. It's others. Servanthood is the expression of humility before God. And we're not without an example of this, but even more than that, we're not without a promise that Jesus himself would make this possible through us. Okay, we'll close with this. Philippians 2, verse 3 through 11. And many of you know this text, but just close your eyes, take it in fresh. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or arrogance. But in humility, consider others more important than yourself. How how countercultural is that? Consider others more important than you. Everyone should look out not only for their own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, I love that verse because it's not saying don't like just run recklessly out into life and never consider your own family, your own life, your own well-being. That's foolishness, not wisdom. 
But wisdom is, I'm going to actually run out and I'm not just going to live for my own interests because that's the default of my heart. I'm going to look at my own interests and consider them, but ultimately I'm also going to consider the betterment of others. Then it goes on. Why can we take this posture? Well, we can adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existed in the form of God and did not consider equality with God something to be exploited with his power. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, because he humbled himself, God has highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. Hallelujah. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every knee will in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The only choice we have, you and I will bow a knee. You and I will use our mouth and declare that Jesus is Lord. The only choice we get is will we do it as humble servant of a gracious, loving king? Or will we do it as one who is under judgment from a holy, gracious, and loving God? Because we decided to go on our own self-serving, self-saving mission instead. Servanthood is not just behaviors that we do every once in a while when we feel generous. It's a posture. It's a posture. It's a disposition. It's an internal temperament of my heart. It's a posture of all of life. That I would come as a humble learner into all of life, thinking not first of my own interests, but of the interests of others. Not thinking of what I can get, but what I can give. Tim Keller in his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, which if you have not read it, uh, we're going to get it in the bookstore because it's just too great to not have when we get back to a bookstore. Uh, <laughs> but the book, Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, it's very short, very accessible. I encourage you to get it. He says this, The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. If you take stock of your day-to-day, -day, how many times you think about yourself. I did it this week and I was like so appalled that every single situation I'm in, the first thing I'm thinking is what does this do for me? Like, that's, that's just, I'm honestly, I'm just humbly confessing. So like, what is this going to do for me? Now, I've been able to like walk myself back from that ledge and be like, oh, that, that was ridiculous to think that first, Dustin. Really? It's like, no, no, how can I help? How can I serve? Right? And I'm still failing at this all over the place. But if you pay attention to your mental map, like, like the teleprompter in your own mind always puts you first. Your comforts, your everything. It's like self-everything. Because that's what sin does. Sin is just the self turning inwards on the self without any recognition to the God who made us. So, as we close, as we reflect, as we respond, where can you point in your life right now that you have seen that you can celebrate growth in this area? Like you can point it to your life, point out real practical examples in your life. Not, not one time when you felt generous and you did something nice. But like, where, where can you point in your life right now where you're, where you're repeatedly working the muscle of being a servant? In the church, outside of the church, in your community, in your own household, 
at your workplace, at your school, wherever it is, how are you putting other people's needs before your own? Because the promise, if we paid attention to Philippians 2 here, is that it's when we put other people's needs before ourselves that God promises to take care of ours. And that is a beautiful promise that we have in the gospel. So how are we going to come into community with a posture of service? Not what we can get, but what we can give, knowing that God is going to fill in that gap and care for us better than we ever could care for ourselves. So let me ask and reflect and pray. What would Reach Montreal look like if we thought of ourselves that the default thinking in our mind was that we are a family of servants who have been ransomed by our gracious, loving King? Imagine our posture towards not just one another, yes to one another, but also to those, the, 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 the onlooking world, the watching world, that we would posture ourselves as an emergency relief team who would go out as servants, who care for each other and love one another well, but out of that flows care and service of those around us in our communities. And secondly, what could that look like in a season like this? Because I know, I know there are so many so many ways that we can't go about what we would want to go about right now. But rather than focus on what we can't do, let's focus on what we could do, but do it with the posture as humble learners. To go out into a world that doesn't know what it looks like to live with others being put first and go and love and serve and care for them out of that. Let me pray for us and we'll respond and reflect on exactly that. Father, you didn't need to come and rescue us at all. But you wanted to. You desire us. You bring us home because you want us there. And you know what is best for us. So many times we come to you and, and ask you for something or, or live in a way that you just look at us and say, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're asking. So Father, we come with our plans, our ideas, our self-serving um, perspectives and attitudes, and we just lay them down this morning. And we ask that you would allow us as your people to truly re represent the attitude that is perfectly embodied in your son as the one who actually is God but doesn't consider that power of being God, doesn't use it to exploit others, but to save us. And so I just pray for us now, this morning, as we reflect, as we respond, as we go. Some of us, Lord, we are, we are buggered up right now. We are banged up. We are hurting. We are alone. We are struggling. I pray that we would find ways to serve each other, to love each other, to pick up each other's head in times like this. And others of us, we're, we're thriving right now. We're doing well. I pray that we would be the ones to step up and put others' interests and needs before our, owns, our own so that we, Lord, would be able to be the ones to, to love and serve one another as, as a family of servants that are just reflecting your heart for the world. So we invite you into this. We ask that this morning would do exactly that that you would empower us, that you would fill us, that you would encourage us, and that it would be done for your glory and in your name.
We pray all these things in Christ's power. Amen.